Just a heads up, this episode contains some explicit language. I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And Richie Hardcore is a New Zealand-based public speaker and educator, discussing domestic and sexual violence, mental health, and masculinity. As a former alcohol and drug harm reduction community worker, he is also passionate about the causes of and remedies for addiction. He was a radio host in Auckland for 15 years as a music DJ and interviewer of politicians, celebrities, and musicians. He is also a now-retired multiple Muay Thai champion with 30 years in martial arts. He now trains some of New Zealand's most accomplished fighters and works with young people, especially young men, to form a healthier understanding of masculinity and sexuality. Richie? Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it, Michael. Of course. Well, I really appreciate having you. <laughs> now, we just got to get into the thick of things, Richie. Hardcore is your legal middle name. It's a self-chosen tribute at the age of 26 to your childhood love of the hardcore punk rock music scene. And you've said it was a positive influence in your life. So why was the hardcore punk rock music scene a healthy influence for you? And how was it a healthy influence? Yeah, cool. That's a cool question to start with. Well, I grew up listening to metal and rock and then sort of gangster rap. And that all resonated with me on quite an emotional level. You know, like there's a visceral feeling to the aggression in that music that I resonated with, like millions of people do. Because, you know, as is public knowledge, growing up was difficult and there's a lot of chaos and drama in my household. And that music felt like an energetic fix. And when one of my best friends in high school started going, yo, yo, you should check out this and playing me bands like Earth Crisis and Minor Threat and bands from the late 80s and uh, 90s in the hardcore scene and the punk scene, I was like, oh, yo, this is kind of revolutionary because it had the same sound as metal and the same sort of rhythm as hip hop. But a lot of the lyrics were constructive in a way that I'd never been exposed to before. These were songs about animal rights and how being sober <laughs> is actually a real edge in life and it's countercultural to consciously reject intoxication, encourage you to think differently. And there was this whole cool, vibrant scene of cool young guys around me with, for the era, cool style and tattoos and all these things that really resonated with me. I really dove into it and I played in shitty bands and then my friends started bringing out artists from America. And then I first went to New York City when I was like 19 years old for three months just to go to iconic clubs like CBGBs and see all the bands that I really idolized up close and personal and just really got acculturated into the New York hardcore scene. I met some people I'm still friends to this day who continue to be kind of iconic in the scene. You know, I did a radio show over here, like you mentioned, and I got to interview every like American artist who was touring and it really gave me like a community and it gave me a introduction into political culture in some ways. This is before I went to university, you know, it was really pro-social, you know, and this is the time before social media and we'd meet up at shows and people would make fanzines and talk about big ideas and self-print t-shirts and it just was a really cool, positive community with music at the heart of it and counterculture ideas at the heart of it as opposed to drugs and alcohol which is what was around me in my environment where I grew up yeah it really continues to be part and parcel of my life to this day 
I'm not obviously as active in the hardcore scene. I can play bands. You know, New Zealand's a small country and you, you really stick out as, as like a 43-year-old at an all-ages show in a community hall like we used to go to. But I still go to big bands when they tour. I was just in Australia actually touring with a very big, successful UK band called Architects. And my role in the scene is kind of different now. So I was doing like these five-minute presentations to three or 4,000 people a night about what healthy masculinity looks like and how we can stop violence against women, you know? It feels like a cool organic sort of evolution in that space and like a merging of two very important parts of who I am. You talk a lot about the distance between kind of the unhealthy behavior that is often marketed in the mainstream and what the kind of behavior that young men and young people in general should be modeling. In fact, you had a quote where you said, imagine if straight edge culture was marketed the same way we market alcohol brands, end quote. Yeah, you really looked me up. I appreciate it. Yeah, imagine that, right? Imagine if instead of selling self-destruction to us every day on Instagram and Twitter and radio and LED billboards, we had look after your health and love the people around you. And this is how you can deal with your mental health better. Imagine if we use some of the smartest people in the world, the way that corporations have made social media addictive to a destructive point. Alcohol is normalized. Vaping is poisoning people as a completely manufactured desire. Imagine if we were selling good ideas the way that we sell poison to our youth and to society in general. Imagine how liberating that would be. Imagine how many people would live longer, fuller lives. Imagine how much less domestic violence there would be. Imagine how much less suicide there would be. Imagine how much happier and fulfilled people would be. We live in a society where so many people are adrift and unmoored and they suffer internally despite their material needs being fulfilled. And yet so many others are materially deprived and instead of working hard to improve our welfare and fix living costs, we just let the market dictate, yo, here's a whole bunch of shitty ways that you can self-medicate. Where I live, and I imagine this is the same where you live, like the neighborhoods which are most marginalized have got the most off-licensed liquor shops and the liquor's cheaper and we do nothing to regulate the advertising of that poison. You know what I'm saying? Now, I know I probably sound pretty hardcore, but... Well, it is your name. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I try to live up to that. <laughs> I'm not saying don't drink. But like, if you want to have a glass of wine, I'm not going to judge you. You know, I have friends who recreationally use illicit drugs and alcohol and all of that. But the fact of the matter is these things do cause a great deal of emotional and physical and spiritual harm to people. And we kind of turn a blind eye to that and it, it continues to make me angry. Yeah. To quote you to yourself once again, you've said, quote, I think we live in a culture of avoidance end quote. And I think that's true. And that's something that I deal with a lot or that I have dealt with a lot in therapy. I've dealt with depression and anxiety. And a lot of the ways that I would deal with that depression and anxiety before I sought out healthier outlets for it was at the bottom of a bottle or the end of a joint. You know, I was self-medicating to avoid the things that were causing me pain. And kind of in that vein, what we view as normal or abnormal in our life is largely a reflection of the environment we grew up in and the people who raised us. You've said you grew up in an environment of family violence, of domestic violence. Your 
father struggled with depression and alcoholism. How did these experiences as a child shaped how you viewed interpersonal relationships, male-female relationships, and masculinity? Yeah, quite profoundly. Obviously, that all underpins my professional work, my academic studies, I guess my love of combat sports, because on a really visceral level, it made me angry and hurt. And it made me not have a lot of self-esteem. It gave me a lot of, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Alcoa, you know, adult children alcoholics. You know, we have a lot of similar personality traits based on our experiences of parenting our parents, of trying to keep the peace, of always walking on eggshells. I always thought a healthy relationship was nonviolent, right? And like I thought hitting a woman was the worst thing you could ever do. And even my father told me that. My father wasn't routinely physically violent towards my mother. He was on a couple of occasions. He was very emotionally abusive, though. And he wasn't routinely physically violent to me. And when I was a teenager, I was actually bigger and stronger, and I'd been training my shots. I laid out my father a couple of times when he was aggressive towards me and my mother. <laughs> it's not very healthy, you know. I guess how that shaped me was it made me carry like quite a deep wellspring of pain around. And I channeled that into the musical culture I was part of. And then I channeled that, and it continues to be this way, into martial arts, right? So I had my first competitive fight when I was 13 years old. My dad had taken me up to the local like community hall and said, hey, I'm not doing the best job as a dad. Can you help out my boy? And which I really love my dad for because fighting saved my life, you know. I think I would have definitely got into like drugs and all sorts of trouble if I hadn't found it. Or just lived a miserable life. So I'm always grateful to my father for that. And while he had his failings, he tried his best with what he had. And I think we need to give people who hurt us grace and understand that. You know, I know my dad carries a great deal of shame around how he was as my father. And I wish he could forgive himself so we could be closer because we're not that close. And I think that's because he's embarrassed to be around me and he's embarrassed to be around my children. And I wish he wasn't. But point being, all those experiences gave me like fuel for 30 years of fighting people. I competed for 20 years before retiring. Yeah, I was pretty good at it for my era. I think my lack of self-esteem and self-confidence and my anxiety held me back from going as far as I could have gone. But at the same time, it made my life exponentially bigger than it would have been if I hadn't done that. I got to fight in Thailand and Japan and Australia. And when I retired from fighting, I've moved into coaching, as you discussed. And I've got to work with some of New Zealand's best athletes who've gone into the UFC, you know, like globally famous superstars, some of my good friends, and I get to rub shoulders with inspiring people all the time through martial arts. And the people around me get me to continue to do more, you know, like as you get older, it can be hard to keep starting new projects and pushing yourself forward and overcoming life's trials and tribulations. And I see my friends grinding or I see my friends losing on the world stage and I see my friends succeeding and overcoming adversity and it makes me want to continue to do that. So if I'm going to frame it positively, the negative experiences in my childhood were actually like one of my greatest gifts because it made me want to do more and be more. And it made me hungry to be different from my dad and my dad's dad and my dad's dad's dad because all this shit is intergenerational. It's given me a deep curiosity of myself and the world around us. And now I got two sons. I got my stepson and my nine-month-year-old boy. I get to very consciously ensure that I'm always trying to show up for them and do it different, you know? 
yeah, those experiences are hard and I get upset talking about it sometimes. And part of that is because I know so many other children growing up like I grew up and worse. I have a little charity that I started and I do a bunch of unpaid work through that while I look for funding and stuff. And I work with kids whose parents are in prison or their parents are like, they make my childhood look nice, you know, like horrifically violent and sexual abuse and molestation and the worst shit that can happen to anyone. They come through our shitty little fighters gym and it brings me a lot of joy to see them turn up and bring their friends and send me a message on Instagram and go, oh, hey, I know this other kid, like he's living on the streets. Can he come to training? And he's got no money. Is that all good? And you can just get to say yes, you know? So I don't think if I'd had the childhood I had, I would have that empathy for their experience and be able to relate to them in the way that I do. Even if I'd got into the social space, I might just be like, another sort of academically informed person. But I did it the other way around. Like I come from the background that I came from and I put academia and professionalism on the top of that. I was giving a talk the other night actually and I said to the audience, I'm like, I actually feel quite awkward in front of people like you, <laughs> you know, people who are doctors and professors and politicians and it's not my natural environment. I feel a bit out of place with those people, even though I've done a bunch of that stuff. I've got to meet people in positions of influence, but they've never really been my tribe. I feel kind of fake around them. Whereas today I was training guys in gangs and electronic bracelets, tatted up real hard, and I feel like they're my people and I get to help them. And that's the gift of my upbringing. Yes. I mean, I think that there is something, to use a word you used earlier, visceral, about having that connection with someone from lived experience, right? It's one thing to study a topic academically. It's another thing to live it, to experience it, that gives you a one-to-one connection to someone who's been through something similar to you. You know, on Masculinity, you appeared on friend of the show, Megan Daum's podcast, her fantastic podcast, The Unspeakable. And you said, quote, there's a void of moderate, sensible people to talk about that space. Social media polarizes everything, and I feel like a lot of young men in particular feel a bit like, who am I supposed to be now? We've done a pretty good job at deconstructing stereotypical constructs around masculinity, which do have societal value historically, but don't actually serve us anymore. But we haven't done a good job at role modeling a healthier, more expansive idea of masculinity, and so boys are kind of stuck. And I love Richard Reeves' book, and he writes a good argument that we need to do a better job at showing a middle ground there, end quote. According to the Brookings Institution, where the aforementioned guest of the show, Richard Reeves, is a senior fellow, and this is going to take a little bit, but I want to kind of bring our audience in here on some of these statistics, and I want to tie it into something you were saying earlier about some of the young men with criminal backgrounds that you work with. So between 2005 and 2019, an average of 70,000 Americans died annually from what are known as deaths of despair, and that encompasses three types suicide, drug overdose, and alcohol poisoning. And these deaths are overwhelmingly concentrated among those without a college degree, and they're mostly men, by a ratio of four to one, which means that for every 100 women who are dying from deaths of despair, 400 men die. And both anecdotal and hard evidence points to these deaths being in large part caused by an absence of meaning. So perhaps the job their father worked and their grandfather worked has been shipped overseas or they're unable to find a partner or they're divorced, right? 30 years ago, 55% of men reported having at least six close friends. Today, only about one in four men say the same thing. 15% of men have no close friendships at all, 
This is all American stats. In 1990, only 3% of men said they had no close friends. So if there's no reason to get out of bed every morning, if you feel like you're not of any importance, and if the media and world at large doesn't seem to care about you, what is the point in living, right? I want to tie this in to something you've said about young men who've turned to a life of crime, which is, and I'm kind of paraphrasing you here, Richie, but you said something to the effect of criminal offending is a coping mechanism for what they are carrying around inside of them. And I think that that is a very astute observation. And I think this phenomenon is very much of a piece with the deaths of despair that we're seeing in older men who are drinking themselves or drugging themselves to death in their 40s, 50s, and 60s. Because while committing a crime might not be killing yourself, you are, in a sense, throwing your life away. You're saying, in effect, that your life is of so little value that what may happen to you as a result of your actions doesn't really matter because your life doesn't really matter. You're staring out into an abyss, a void of meaning and purpose, and you're noting, rather logically, I might add, that self-destructive behavior has little consequence if there's nothing meaningful to lose. So what are your thoughts on this, especially as someone who has worked with these boys, who's worked with these men who have criminal records? They're not just people I work with, people I'm friends with too, you know? Yeah. A bunch of my friends have gone to jail, hurt people pretty badly, got caught up selling drugs and stuff. And, you know, every circumstance is different, but if I can speak generally, I think two things come into play. One is if you're from a rough background, particularly my friends who are of like Polynesian descent, you know, Pacific or Maori in criminality, like gang membership is intergenerational. And then the system does kind of treat them like, well, this is all you're going to be. I talked to my one friend. I was like, why did you join the Hells Angels, bro? Through kickboxing, I know a lot of people like that. And he said, well, I just was like, oh, you think I'm bad? Well, I'm going to be bad. Yeah. They live down to society's expectations of them. Yeah. 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 That's it. He's like, well, this is all you thought I was going to be. Well, I'm going to be the best that you can be. I can be the best bad guy that you can be, you know, like be the most terrifying, most aggressive, most antisocial version of myself. And I think that does get internalized for some people. And some of that's role model to you. I mean, this is what social capital is, right? Like if you grew up in an economically advantaged environment and the people around you are doctors and lawyers and they're giving you after school jobs in their offices and it's got a MacBook and an iPad and you maybe go to a private school, statistically speaking, you're going to do better, right? You're more likely to recreate those things. Conversely, if your neighborhood has got lots of gang membership, if you've got lots of liquor stores we're talking about, if there's a lot of criminality, if violence is actually socially applauded for maintaining your status, then you're going to lean into that. You know, there's actually like a logical reason to be violent sometimes or aggressive sometimes because you'll be a victim if you're not, depending on the circumstances that you're in. And even in my own life where I've, I've never been particularly criminal, but I remember getting in fistfights in primary school. We would call that elementary school in America and fistfights in intermediate school. I think that's like middle school, you know, like 11, 12 years old and fistfights in high school. And all of that was to my social advantage. As a kid who was not especially aggressive or anything, but if you teased me or bullied me or bullied my friends, I would resort to punching you. That quickly became a way that I understood to gain respect. I couldn't articulate that then, right? Like for an early period in high school, I was kind of like a grunge kid with blue hair. I would have been 
like an emo kid today. You know, I had a nose ring. You know, I would look quite fruity at an all boys. I look real fruity, you know, at an all boys school that was working class and we would get teased and people would make like homophobic slurs around us and all of that. But I tell the story sometimes when I'm speaking with boys, I'm like, yo, I got in this fist fight. These guys came to mess up my friend for some reason and I'd been doing martial arts after school and I did good and I got like a, a pass into the man club all of a sudden. And I leant into that version of what I thought being a man was. You know, I cut off that blue hair and I got a fade. I'd go to the Polynesian barbershop after school and they'd be like, yo, you're the only white boy who comes here. And this has been the 90s. And I swapped my weird outlandish colorful clothes for, you know, tight singlets and basketball jerseys and baggy jeans. And I leant into that image and I leant into my physicality because people treated me differently. Girls treated me differently. And then women as I got older and guys treated me differently and Looking through an academic lens now, what I was leaning into was what we would call hegemonic masculinity, like a social conception of this is what is valued and this is what you're meant to be like and this is how you're meant to appear and this is how you're meant to behave. Some theorists argue that there are many masculinities, right? Like there's black masculinity, working class masculinity, gay masculinity, and we act differently within all of them. But the, the dominant version is the hegemonic standard that we're all meant to live up to right and there's a hierarchy within those right and so we have like an anti-femininity within that hierarchy which is why we have things like homophobia at play or we use terms like soft or don't be weak or don't be a girl or you throw like a girl as pejorative terms because we're establishing that hierarchy and we want to be at the top of that and for a minute there, quite subconsciously, while inside, I was still pretty, pretty sensitive. You know, I think I was talking to Megan about this. Like I'd go home and watch like The Notebook and, you know, City of Angels and like romantic comedies. Or I used to be obsessed with the film Meet Joe Black because I thought it was so wonderfully romantic. Yeah. By myself. It's not really what I talked with Mother Bros about, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I had a lot of female friends when I grew up because I found I could actually be myself more than I could with my male friends. I had a lot of like plutonic friendships with girls and then women, which I'm grateful for, which continues to inform my work today, I suppose. It gave me like an empathy and a sensitivity to the female experience because I'd hear about some of the stuff they put up with, you know? Absolutely. From men. And that led me to continue reflecting on my own manhood. You know, why was I consuming pornography so unconsciously? And I started interrogating that and I started reading widely around that in a kind of organic manner. Why when a guy would say something objectifying of a girl I knew to be real cool, would I just go along with it instead of being like, oh, I don't, you know, like, bro, that's not cool to talk about her body like that. I started interrogating all of that. Yeah, and then my 20s and 30s started talking about that. And I think when I first started, I was every young, idealistic person who's getting a more explicit perspective of society's structures. I was like a dick about it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I was real like preachy, self-righteous dick. Like we see dominates the discourse now. I was one of those guys to some degree. And then it wasn't until I went through a bunch of like personal issues in my 30s that I had to develop some humility and realize I actually didn't have all the answers and I never will. And as I've observed the way we talk about these issues now, I have almost like a, not a shame, because I was trying my best with what I had, but I'm like, oh, I'm so glad I'm not like that anymore. But I feel sad that 
that same tone and language policing and aggressiveness and self-aggrandizement that I might have actually demonstrated in my youthful endeavors is now what gives people social capital. It's gross. I put a thing on my Instagram today, you know, which pissed off some people, but I don't really care. I said, you know, while super woke activists might, I can't remember exactly what I said, the way super woke activists talk, and I know woke is like a contestable term. I mentioned that, you know, it is actually a disadvantage for getting boys and men involved in a movement towards a healthier understanding of masculinity. It's not appealing. It's blaming. It's judgmental. It's overly academic. There's an exclusivity to it. You have to use particular jargon. You have to behave in this obsequious manner in order to be an ally the right way. It actually gets in the way of real change. Again, you know, if I think about my childhood and I compare it to my early activism and education work, I had to go through those difficult periods or I have to self-reflect on how I was in order to do it better now. I get so frustrated with it all. I feel like so much of what I want to achieve is hampered by people who want the same outcomes, but their methods, I would argue, are all wrong. Yeah. You've said about Twitter, quote, some of the smartest people in the world are projecting all their inner suffering onto some hapless stranger, which I thought was an excellent description of the platform. You mentioned a lot of really good stuff in there, so I kind of want to respond to it point by point. You've mentioned shame a few times, either your own shame or your father's shame. And I'm glad that you brought it up because shame is is kind of the poison that kills you twice. Mm, Nice. You feel shame when you experience the thing that induces shame. And then it kills you again because you carry that shame around often for years. And then how we deal or don't deal with that shame is the cause of a lot of oftentimes subconsciously driven unhealthy behavior. And so you feel it first, you know, when you actually feel it. And then being unable to resolve the shame is just this like poisonous trickle effect that just is in your body. So unless you expunge it through some kind of healthy outlet, it kills you a second time. Totally. And to your other point about why a lot of What we view from the outside as unhealthy behavior in boys and men, this is something that I learned many years ago, too late, but I'm glad that I finally came around to learning it, which is when you find yourself unable to understand why someone is acting a way that appears irrational to you, the best place to start is to understand that the vast majority of people are rational actors. Hmm. rational actors that respond to environmental and social incentives. Hmm. For our listeners, like if you see someone, you know, in an inner city portion of, you know, let's say Chicago or New York or, you know, the rural mountains of Appalachia or wherever it might be, right? I'm sure there are neighborhoods in, in New Zealand that mirror the ones I'm talking about in America. And you look at that behavior and you think to yourself, why on earth would anyone do that? I think it's just best to understand that all of those individuals are acting in their best interests and responding rationally to the incentives that they're provided for on the ground. And so I'm I'm glad that you brought that up because I think that one of the things that prevents us from really helping these kids is by assuming that they're acting irrationally. But by understanding that they're actually responding rationally to the incentives provided, we can try, which is what you're doing with your work, we can try to jump in the middle of that stream there and provide them better responses to the incentives that are acting upon them, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, bro, 100%. You know, in the gym every day, I use corny analogies to be like, all right, so in Thai boxing, in Muay Thai, we need to measure ourselves and not rush into a counter because we might make a mistake if we rush, right? And then if we make a mistake, we get hurt. Well, dog, it's the same in life, you know? Like, so if someone disrespects you and you rush in all angry and emotional, you're going to get caught up in some bullshit. You're going to hurt someone, hurt yourself, go back to jail, go to jail. You see that, what I'm saying? And we do all these corny sort of analogous life lessons. You know, I talk about, you know, when your stance is stable, when you've got good footwork from the bottom up, everything else can be better. It's the same with our childhoods. If your childhood's shaky, yo, it's hard to build a, a stable life on top of that. You all got kids now. Let's give them that foundation that we never had. And men in particular relate to that. I work with sisters too. I work with women from prison on Wednesdays and men from prison on Fridays. They love those life lessons. Are there any binding qualities or narratives around the boys and men that you mentor in martial arts? And if you want to speak generally about boys and girls as well, or men and women as well, feel free. But I'm just wondering if there's like anything overarching that draws them to the practice of martial arts, anything common that you're observing in how they carry themselves or their attitudes or their histories. What is bringing those young people into the gym in the first place? Actually, I asked two of the brothers today. I made this little video for Instagram. I think there's a catharsis which comes from the physical action of striking something and learning how to refine your ability to do that and sharpening your tools. I think there's a physical release. Russell Vandercook wrote a book called The Body Keeps Score, and he talks about there's a somaticness to trauma. Like we carry it in our bodies. And for me, the art of combat was how I processed that before I could articulate any of the stuff to you. I couldn't intellectualize my pain and my suffering, but I could feel it every day. And running up hills and kicking the pads until I vomited and getting my face bust up helped me work through all of that. I've had my skull fractured. I've had my nose broken. I've had my teeth chipped. I've had over 50 stitches in my face. I've broken bones. And all of those experiences helped me process my pain. I think <laughs> maybe it just made me stupider. <laughs> There's a bit of head trauma in there. Who knows? But um, it gave me a place to put all of that in a way that was constructive and built me up as a human being rather than destructive, like drugs or alcohol could have been or crime could have been. Don't get me wrong. I, I definitely have had made stupid decisions in my life. You know, I've hurt people emotionally with infidelity and stuff when I was young. But if I hadn't had the structure and the discipline that martial arts gave me and a combat sports career gave me, being in the gym twice a day, six days a week for a huge amount of my life, I would genuinely think I would have, I don't even know, you know, I don't even know if I'd be here. I would have fallen off the rails. That routine and that discipline gave me a guardrail. And that's what these people get. I talked to two of the bros in today and they said, when I hit the bag, I just feel like I'm working through all the stuff I've been through. I walk out of here feeling better than I walked in. You know, there's a physiological response to this. Obviously, Michael, you get endorphins, you get dopamine, like it becomes like this really cool self-fulfilling thing. I feel bad. I walk in, I do some exercise, I feel better. Before I would have picked up the crack pipe or I would have gone and done some crime or whatever. You know, we've had this conversation in the gym. But there's also like a camaraderie. It's really cool for me to see a guy who's been coming for 10 sessions and then someone who's just starting and the guys come for 10 sessions starting to teach the other person how to do the basics. 
and they're helping each other. You don't want people to depend on you. You want to give them tools that they can carry for the rest of their life, no matter where they are. And the love of exercise and self-discipline is one of those tools. You could argue that hard training is an emotional escape mechanism. And if it is because you're not feeling your feelings, then at least it's better than all the other stuff. But for some people, I think it's an active meditation. If you think about what mindfulness is, a presence and a being in the moment experience with a monkey mind is not taking you back to all the things that hurt you and all the things that could hurt you. Your very best training sessions or your very best fights, you're 100% present. You're in this flow state, which is very rare in our time-poor, overcrowded, distracting modern world to experience. And martial arts allows us to do that, and we can do that daily if we dedicate ourselves, if we have that discipline. If we have that ability to feel uncomfortable and get comfortable in that experience of the uncomfortable, when you love putting yourself into a difficult state, when you could have stayed at home or you could have done more drugs or you could have done more crime or whatever, that's when your life gets better. Because I think a lot of people are unhappy, but they're not capable or they're unwilling and they don't know that the growth happens in the hard part, not the easy part. We live in this pain avoidant society. And then we wonder why we're so emotionally like hampered and hamstrung. And then I think that plays out into our broader culture. You know, Jonathan Haidt, the social psychologist talks about that. We now have become like so emotionally and psychologically and academically fragile that we can't even talk about things. We have to have trigger warnings, which are actually not proven to at all avoid emotional pain or discomfort and potentially even worsen it. And this permeates culture now. I joke with my bros, like, I think we're at the time where the meek haven't inherited the earth, (laughs) which don't get me wrong, I have a sensitivity for people who are struggling, but it's become so divorced from rationality or productivity From where I sit, at least, I feel like it's making the world worse, not better. I feel we have, to use Jonathan Haidt's turn, coddled people to the point that normal life is insurmountable and normal challenges and struggles termed trauma. And we have this over-self-diagnosis of all manner of psychopathologies And our young people see this and they absorb this and they're marinating in this. And what do we see? We see a rise in diagnoses of things like ADHD. We see a rise of anxiety and depression, self-harming behavior. We see social fracturing. We see political polarization to the point that democracy itself seems unstable in many countries that you would never have imagined that. The capital riots, are you kidding me? Insane. My own country, we have people camped outside parliament during COVID-19 with a whole range of disparate interests and belief systems permeated by social media algorithms. Some, I guess, are logically justifiable, but some were bananas. I guess those are two, I suppose, alt-right reactionary movements that I'm referencing there. But I feel the same as in a lot of our institutions too that come from a progressive space, which is, I would argue, dominated by ideology, which is steeped in postmodern philosophy, where everyone has their truth and there's no a truth. There's no social cohesiveness anymore. And these ideas that 
I believe, a term standpoint theory, where an individual's standpoint is actually an evidence base that we can build things like legislation and policy around. What? There's 8 billion ways of seeing this one thing? Are you kidding me? (laughs) A lot of these things are, and Reeves talks about this at some length as well, a lot of these things are well-meaning and fine enough when confined to the strictures of academia, like standpoint theory, right? There is truth in the idea that your perspective as someone who came from a home with abuse and alcoholism is going to inform the way that you view the world and provide perspective in ways that I can't provide because I don't share your background. But the problem with that is, and the way that it becomes corrupted to yes and your point, is when we then take that and take it to its craziest conclusion, which is that there is no such thing as objective truth. There's no one-size-fits-all democracy. There's no topic that we can agree on because you and I are so different because of our backgrounds that we can never understand one another. And what that does is it creates this increasingly, and this is not helped by social media and the internet, it creates this increasingly atomized society in which we have no bonds of commonality because bonds of commonality are either seen as oppressive or hegemonic, or we embrace this almost metastasized hyper-individuality in which intersectionality becomes this thing where none of us are alike to one another, so there's nothing we can agree upon. Dude, 100%. Again, it comes from a good place, but it's like this toxic game of telephone where it goes from academia to social media and the definition changes so much between those two points that it's almost unrecognizable. But to address a couple of the things you said there, Richie, because you said a lot of great stuff. So first, if I can kind of sum up what you were saying about what a lot of these young men and women are finding in martial arts. It's almost a meme at this point, but there's this phrase, you know, hurt people, hurt people. And it sounds like martial arts is not only providing structure and discipline, but also allowing people a safe place to channel their aggression, a way to experience flow state. And, you know, it's hard to be on Instagram when you're wearing big gloves and hitting a bag. (laughs) And it feels like it's providing a feeling of community that can provide the camaraderie and connection that some people might otherwise find in a gang. Yeah, 100%. And I also, one thing I forgot to mention is that they get positive reinforcement. Yeah. Mm. If you work hard, I'll pat you on the back like, great job. If you turn up and your skills sucks, I will tell you, I'm so glad you came today. Yeah. For me, as a kid who never got that, at least when I was young, it felt really good to have people I thought were cool tell me that I did something well. And encouraged me to come back the next day and try some more. So I did it for 20 years and then I started teaching it. And I get to do that with people now. And some of the work I do, I don't get paid for it, but it is, there's no money in the world that could remunerate me the way a group of guys who've had the roughest lives lining up to say, thank you very much on a Friday morning makes me feel, you know, like, thank you so much for this. Like this really made my day. Yeah. Thank you for helping me. Thank you for training And it's just such a gift, you know, like I feel so happy to be able to give back like that. I'm going to try and briefly relay a story that I think is related here. And I'm going to try not to get too emotional recalling it. Bro, go off. Get emotional. (laughs) You're good, dog. (laughs) Not that I'm ashamed to share my emotions, but it'll just be that much longer for me to get through it. So there was this organization that I, I used to work with that I volunteered with called the Young Storytellers Foundation here in Los Angeles. They operate at the elementary, middle school, and high school level. I was strictly with elementary school kids. And what it does is at dozens of schools, it pairs 10 adult mentors in the film industry, either writers, actors, filmmakers, with 10 children per school 
at schools that might be underfunded in the arts or the children are at risk. And for eight weeks, one hour a week for eight weeks, they have these 10 mentors and then one head mentor. And I would play the role of the head mentor, kind of guiding the class through each week's lessons, right? And it's about guiding these children through writing their first five-page screenplay. And a lot of the lessons are like how to develop characters, the importance of details in your story. And there were no rules for these screenplays, except obviously no bad language. And the characters couldn't resolve their conflicts with violence, but everything else was fair game. There was no assignment. They could write about whatever they wanted to write about. And I could tell in a lot of these situations, I did this for six years, I could tell in a lot of these situations that a lot of these kids had not had the opportunity to be creative in a way that wasn't homework, that wasn't mandatory for them, that wasn't assigned. You tell some of these kids, you know, write whatever you want to write about. And some of them would almost stare back at you blankly, like, I don't, what am I, what do you mean, write whatever I'm, I want to write about? And some of the stories that came out of these kids were so beautiful. One was so ridiculous. It was about, I still remember the title of it. It was called Super Secret Penguins versus the Atomic Bomb. It was about Secret Service agents that were penguins that were working for President Obama. And they had to fight the evil Mr. Peanut Head before he destroyed the world with a nuclear bomb. There was another one that was written by a kid, and he said it was fictional, but it was very much clearly about his own father. It was about a father of children who wanted to become a professional soccer player and gave up that childhood dream to be a dad to his children and then was presented with the opportunity to be a soccer player in the screenplay, and his family showed up for him, very clearly rooted in his own father's experience. But there was one story that stuck with me And it was after the eight weeks when the children's screenplays were finished and they got to see their scripts performed live in their school's auditorium by professional actors and they got to have the red carpet treatment. We did this at the end of every eight-week session. In the ninth week, we'd have the kids sit around and we'd all eat pizza. And I would go around the circle and I'd ask kids questions about what they liked and what they would want to improve. And (laughs) I went around and I asked, what's one thing that you wish you could change about the Young Storytellers program. And I heard this answer a lot in the ensuing years, but this was the first time I heard it. And it was hard to keep my composure because the thing that I heard from these kids as I went around the circle, you know, hey, John, what would you change about Young Storytellers? Or Melissa, what would you change about Young Storytellers? And almost every one of them answered in a slight variation of the same answer. I wish it never ends. I wish it wouldn't end we would realize that for a lot of these children, the moment that Young Storytellers ended was the moment that they would lose the opportunity to be creative and be validated in their creativity on a regular basis by adults that specifically weren't mandated to teach them, weren't their teachers, and they weren't their parents. It was adults who had authority they could look up to, but who were there on their own volition, who just wanted them to be their best creative selves. And so hearing you talk about how important that was for you as a kid going to you know martial arts classes and just that positivity and positive reinforcement and encouragement from an adult in something that you're interested in pursuing can be so meaningful when you're starved of it as a kid dude 100 percent. you know like I, I run programs in the day in conjunction with different charities that bring their young people to the gym where i teach right and then some of those kids are like, do you have other classes? And I say, yeah, I have classes for like gym pop or athletes. And they're like, oh, does it cost any money? And you're like, well, do you have any money? And they're like, oh, no. And I'm like, then just come. But you can't, 
go out and get in fights and you can't sell drugs. And they're like, okay, mean. And it's so cool when they make their way to the gym in the afternoon and they're, then they're rubbing shoulders with a different demographic of people too, you know, and it becomes like aspirational for them. They're like, oh, yo, how do I do that? How do I be a fighter? How do I lose weight? How do I get fit? How do I look after my body? Because our bodies, minds, spirits are all interconnected. And when we strengthen one, we strengthen the other. And we do that very tangibly every day with what we're doing, you know. At the same time, like I get to, I say, Trojan horse, some of my broader work into that environment. You know, I'm like a stereotypically appearing guy with tattoos and I speak kind of rough sometimes and I have a good athletic past. And I get to sneak in these ideas about, yo, 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 there's no way to talk about women or yo, don't use that homophobic language, my bro. You know, like we don't want to be like that. You know what I mean? Like you can be tough and you still don't have to like front like that. And yo, what do you get up to the weekend? Oh, yo, there's a fight at this party. I'm like, yo, I thought we had an agreement, you know, like that violence. Did you stay away from it? I hope so. Cause we had a deal and cause I've built a relationship and built that trust. You get to be a mentor in a way that other environments might encourage them to lean into that manifestation of being a young man. And so you get to have this ongoing little micro influence on them. I see the dividends paying off, you know? It's just going back to environment and incentives. Yeah, that's what it is. It's just hood sociology or something. You know what I mean? Like, it's totally true. I mean, if you're in an environment where you're seeing you know, a man, and a man in this case might just be, you're 11, he's 16. He's a man to you. And he's acting in unhealthy ways. He's doing bad things, illegal things, negative things. But you see this guy doing these bad things and everyone around you admires him. If you're a kid and you're seeing that, you're like, okay, everyone looks up to him, then I'm going to do what he's doing. But it's surprisingly so easy to solve, easy in a way, because of what you just said. It's like, you just take that kid who's in that environment and they're seeing unhealthy behavior and mimicking it. Well, all you got to do is get them in a place like the gym that you're at. And they're just craving male mentorship. They're craving people who can who can guide them and lead them. And if you just replace that unhealthy behavior with healthy behavior, but they still get that positive feedback from male role models that they can aspire to be like, mm. it's it's not rocket science, you know? <laughs> it's not rocket science, right? Michael, it's not rocket science. And yet we don't do that. Like, that's why I love Reeves' book. Like, Reeves' book was really a little bit challenging for me, but I was like, yo, he's right. When I read this data and I read this research, and it is the same in New Zealand and Australia and Oceania, where I live, and it's true across like Western democracies, I imagine. I mean, perhaps not Scandinavia, you know, like they're doing pretty well. But yeah, it's not rocket science, and yet we don't fund these things. We, we kind of ignore these issues, and it's a real bummer. It's not sexy, you know what I mean? It's not sexy. It's actually unpopular. The more I've changed my messaging to have a sympathy for the male experience, the more I get pushback from people who used to love yeah. what I would say about how we end gendered violence, domestic violence. When I say hashtags like men are trash and not a helpful hashtag, people get all like uppity about it. If you're rational and you're truly looking at both sides of the culture war and one side is demonizing and pathologizing manhood in and of itself and normal male pursuits like sports or Reeves or Carol Hooven, who wrote Testosterone, they'll talk about like boys and men as they go through adolescence, they do get this flood of testosterone, which does make them more sexually interested in the opposite sex. And when we demonize normal sexual attraction, 
it just leaves boys and men kind of really struggling with their identity. And well, what is, what? Like, how am I meant to do this? Yes. I had, I had someone ask me on Facebook yesterday, is it okay? He asked me, is it okay to hold the door open for someone these days? He genuinely was asking me as someone who he follows and who talks about this. So I don't know anymore. I'm scared to open the door because I don't want to offend women. And I'm like, yo, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about sexual harassment and objectifying women and wolf whistling. And, you know, if you give me a blowjob after hours, I'll give you the film role a la Harvey Weinstein. You know, like when we're telling women, oh, can you go get me the coffee while I do this meeting? Like these sorts of infantilizing sexist tropes and attitudes, they do remain. And we do need to challenge those. Yes. But when men are scared to hold the door open or ask a woman out on a date or any of the sorts of things, I'm like, you know, we just... This isn't living. This isn't how we fix these issues. So many of our quote-unquote leaders are going from, I think, what is healthy feedback for young boys and men, the kind that you're talking about, where it's like, hey, don't objectify women. Don't treat them like less than you. But it's going beyond that to the very way that you are male, the very things you feel as a boy, as like you were saying, as puberty is taking hold and testosterone is fueling through you, those things that you feel that are beyond your control they're toxic and you should feel terrible about it. All that message does is make those boys vulnerable to the Andrew Tates of the world, to the fresh and fits of the world. It makes them vulnerable to people who are, you know, I don't want to mince words here, predatory. Yeah. Who are going to swoop in and say, hey, all those, you know, woke feminists who are telling you all the ways that you're bad, guess what? You're not bad. And actually all the behaviors they're telling you were toxic are actually amazing. And what happens is, is that those kids then start ignoring not only the bad advice that's coming from understandably well-meaning, mostly disconnected academics, but they start also ignoring the good advice, which is don't objectify women. Don't treat them as less than. Yes. They lose the ability to filter between the good and bad advice because they've received no good advice from anybody. I love that, bro. It really gives me a lot of hope to hear someone like who I've never met before say that. Because you're right. Who's the second person you referenced after Andrew Tate? (laughs) It's this YouTube channel called Fresh and Fit. These two guys out of Florida, they'll, I can feel nauseous talking about them, but they are these two young men or, you know, in their late 20s maybe. And they regularly will bring on like a panel of women who are, I'm sure they're nice ladies, but they're kind of the epitome of the very kind of woman that these hosts say all women are, right? So they'll find the most shallow women that they can find on the streets of Miami. They'll bring them on and then they'll say, all women are like this. You know, all women are going to cheat on you. All women are going to betray you. All women are just interested in you for your money. So here's how they're giving advice to young men. Here's how we're going to make you immune to women. Here's how we're going to make it so you never fall for their tricks. They take a few women they can find, right? Because in the same way that you can find hyper-toxic men and really aggressive, violent men in the population, you can find any kind of man and any kind of woman. And they'll find the very kind of woman that they're saying all women are, platform them, say they're all out for money and whatever. And then they'll tell men, never have a loving relationship with a woman because you can never trust her. And these videos are getting millions of views. And I know that these boys who are watching these videos are going to them and being suckered in by these videos because they're not getting better advice from men like you. I used to be a kickboxer, right? I was never as good as big or famous as Andrew Tate, but I was all right. And these young brothers sometimes were like, bro, you need to, you need to be like Andrew Tate, bro. Why don't you get a channel? Why don't you do like the positive hustlers university? You know, I just don't know how to do that. 
I feel kind of corny, I suppose. I feel like shy to put myself out like there. But they do need someone like that. They do, yeah. They do need guidance. They do need, yo, you like cars? Sick. You like kickboxing? Sick. That's awesome. But you can like those things and also understand that it doesn't matter how much money is in your bank account. It's not a reflection of your worth. Like You're not going to get any happier once you reach a certain economic level of stability and safety. You know, like you're not going to be a better person because you have 10 Lamborghinis. You're not going to be a better person because you've had sex with a hundred different beautiful women. Like, and actually you'll lose part of yourself along the way trying to be all of those things. You will sacrifice meaningful relationships with your friends and your family. You will never experience real love. You will avoid the heart expanding possibilities of being a father if you think it's like different hoe in every state on a different night, you know what I mean? Like if you think parenting is woman's work, you're actually doing your children and yourself and the mother of your children an irreparable harm. Yeah. You need to be an active present father and you will be better off for it. Like let's be pragmatic with our advice. How do we appeal to the self-interest of a man who's been acculturated to this one way of showing up? If you can express your feelings, if you don't have to hold on to your psychic pain all the time, maybe your mental health will be better. Mm. You know, like if you, if you know it's all right to rest and ask for help and assistance, maybe you'll struggle less and abuse alcohol less. And, yo, it's cool and it's not weak to say that you're depressed and go see a therapist. But all this stuff gets demonized by, you know, the Andrew Tates of this world. And at the same time, I don't think most moderate left-wing people, which is where I position myself on the political spectrum, believe all of this stuff, but the most visible voices within the progressive whatever space it is kind of ignore all of this. They say male privilege, everything. You are inherently on account of your sex, and if you're white on account of your race, your life is destined to be easy. And hey, if we do give credence to where it's due, you know, intersectionality has got a wonderful academic base to it. And life can be more difficult if you are a person of color and if you are male. Yes. But it's not uniform. You know, these diseases of despair, think about the opioid epidemic in your country. Yeah. Poor white men are dying in droves from drugs like fentanyl. Yeah thousands of people a year. It's just like we were talking about, Richie. It's the toxic game of telephone that happens between the world of academia and the mainstream, where you take a worthwhile concept like intersectionality or acknowledging that there are layers of privilege that people get in a society that is rooted in racism and sexism. You can understand that at a societal and structural level. And yet, if you take that worthwhile academic pursuit and then project it onto individual people as they are, and have those individuals speak for the entire group as if they are representative, that's where it gets really toxic. It's one thing to say, hey, maybe there's something in our society that has made it so most of the Fortune 400 CEOs are men, and maybe that's something we should investigate, versus, hey, kid who I've just met, you're toxic and you're privileged because you're a boy. Yeah, Those are two entirely disconnected things. One is an interesting thing to explore as a society, and one is an unhealthy thing that drives that boy into the arms of someone like Tate. Dude, you're so refreshing. Because sometimes I feel quite alone. New Zealand's a small country. I heard a stat that blew my mind that there are more sheep in New Zealand than people. Yeah, that's true. That is true. <laughs> <laughs> Hard to wrap my mind around as an American. Yeah, 
I love America, man. I wish I could bring my family there sometimes. I like the culture that you have in your country a lot more than the culture in my country. I mean, obviously, you know, you guys export a lot of the terrible ideas that we're discussing now. Cheers for that. But uh, <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> but I spent a lot of time in America and American culture and American people, like American friends, have really enriched my life personally, but also created cultures which I think are universally amazing, like hip hop, you know? Yeah. And I find your culture so aspirational in a way that my culture is what we call tall poppy syndrome is, is like endemic here. Like we cut down the tallest flowers and we love to see people fail culturally. And you're meant to have self-effacing humility all times. Mm. You're not meant to strive. You're not meant to strive publicly. You know, I think your country is like the antithesis of that. People have like the wildest dreams and like, <laughs> I'm going to fucking do this. And everyone's like, yeah, bro, go do it. Like go get it, homie. And we'll cheer for you. It's a special kind of American bravado. Yeah. But I like that. It's nice. Yeah. Yeah, I would have been to your country 10 times or something. It's a long way from New Zealand. You know, like it's not a short flight to get to New York. Yes, that is true. Or LA. You know, I got friends out in Orange County and stuff. And I really enjoy that. Don't get me wrong. Like you have wild political polarization. And yes, the culture war that's happened in your country has permeated throughout the West through social media. You know, a lot of these concepts that we're talking about, maybe they have European philosophers at the outset of them, but American academia has popularized them. And I would argue that's the detriment of, I don't want to be hyperbolic, but I do genuinely worry about societal disintegration if we could continue down the road that we're talking about. You talk about this radical individualism. There's a woman that I follow on social media Molly Francis, she's a pretty interesting young woman as far as I can tell, very articulate. And she terms this moment in time as neoliberal identitarianism. Mm. And I think that's quite an apt title. Yeah. When I went back to university in my 20s, it was to look at politics and society after a trip to Mexico that I'd been on. And I was so shocked by the poverty that I saw there, particularly within indigenous communities, because at that time, New Zealand wasn't as economically disparate as it is now. Like we had a growing gap between the rich and the poor due to the neoliberal reforms that we had in the 80s. After being in the 50s, we had one of the highest qualities of life in the world, right? And then we followed sort of like the Reaganomics model. I'm not as hard left as I used to be. Age is a moderating force. Yeah, yeah, it is, man. Like, well, yo, if I'm honest, like capitalism has been good to me in some ways, you know? Yeah, yeah. Through my own merits and there's been a meritocratic success that has allowed me to do better than where I came from. And same from my mother's family too. My mother's family, immigrants, man. My family came from Lebanon two generations ago. My family didn't speak English. They spoke Arabic. And yo, they assimilated and worked hard. And it's a shame to me, the assimilation part, because I would love to be able to speak Arabic and understand my culture like that. But hey, at the same time, they escaped sectarian violence in Lebanon. and came here and did really well for themselves over generations. It took a long, long time, you know? Absolutely. But I can see why hard free marketeers say what they say. Whereas when I was younger, I was like, nah, this is all bullshit. This is a terrible system. I think like a more moderated, embedded, regulated capitalism, like a social democratic model is a good way to go. But within neoliberal identitarianism, it's this fragmentation down to like the most minuscule atoms of our identity 
that's driving these wedges between us. We should just have like a class divide. And if I look at the UK model, class is still kind of like there's poor people of color and poor people who are of European descent, but we all kind of mix it up. You know, if I talk to my UK friends or people who are in the social space in the UK, there's still that sort of class politics at play, whereas the American model, as far as I can observe, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, or your listeners can, kind of superseded class politics. We don't see that conversation anymore. We have identity politics at the forefront of it all, almost to the expense of people who are trying to put foreclosed and shelter on the agenda. Turi F. Reed is an American author and I think academic, and he wrote this book called Towards Freedom. And he talks about, you know, the gap between white people and non-white people is first and foremost an economic gap. And this cultural tutelage that we're sort of going through right now isn't helping the lives of the very real struggle of African-American people who are disproportionately poor compared to white people. Yeah, I think that's true. It's a good argument from him. And it's the same here, you know, like none of this middle class corporate training around diversity, equity, inclusion, which are wonderful outcomes and I'm on board with, but they're still not helping the kids I work with who are poor and their parents are poor, right? Like as long as people are going hungry and not getting clean clothes and don't have a place to sleep, like we need to fix that. And it, I don't see that in the conversation anymore. I see this this fragmentation and it makes me deeply sad. Hey, sure, two things can be true at the same time and we can. it's not one or the other, but I feel like we have kind of almost forgotten the economic class conversation and we focus on this new way of doing things. I don't know. Maybe I'm going to get us all canceled. This is a safe space, Richie. But you know what I'm saying? Do, am I making sense? You're making absolute sense. I think if there's an emerging theme in this conversation, it's that it never gets that great at the extremes of anything, right? Whether it's like an extreme form of capitalism or an extreme form of socialism, an extreme type of masculinity, an extreme expression of academic theories, extreme individualism. Anytime you start getting towards the extreme of any one idea, no matter how good that idea might be, once it starts expressing itself in the most extreme form, things get bad real quick. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Whether it's neoliberal individualism or hyper-capitalism or any other thing, right? an expression of race or class, once you get to the extremes, it just goes south really quickly. But the problem is, is that social media rewards extreme expression. Social media rewards the person who's the most extreme at whatever they're saying, going back to how environment and incentives shape us. Social media is a neighborhood in which you're seeing how everyone else is acting. You're seeing who's getting rewarded and who's not. And in the same way that a young boy might see an older boy or a man acting in a toxic way in his neighborhood and understand that the incentives that are driving that behavior will reward him. Similarly, it's the same thing that on Twitter that drives someone to say all white people or all men are trash. They get 100,000 likes. So then that becomes mimetic. Other people start saying the exact same thing, which then drives more extreme behavior. You know, human beings are social animals and they respond to incentives. But I want to talk about another topic that is important to you. And I want to get us there by reading a passage from an essay that Robert Jensen wrote for the Good Men Project. Oh, I love Robert Jensen. His essay is titled, Pornography is What the End of the World Looks Like. And in that essay, he writes, quote, the majority of the pornography that saturates our hypermediated lives presents not images of just sex, but sex in the context of male dominance. 
As pornography has become more easily accessible online and the sexual acts in pornography have become more extreme, women increasingly report that men ask them to participate in sex acts that come directly from the conventional male supremacist pornographic script with little recognition by men of the potential for pain, discomfort, or distress in their women partners, end quote. And just a little later, he concludes this passage with, quote, after more than two decades of work on this subject, I have no doubt of one truth about contemporary pornography. It is one way that men's capacity for empathy can be dramatically diminished, end quote. As you've just mentioned, Jensen's work has had a big influence on you. Mm. So I would love for you to talk to me about your perspective on what he says here, specifically around that piece about empathy. I love Jensen. I emailed Jensen one time. We would actually say, I emailed Jensen once. (laughs) 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 Yeah, I emailed Jensen once. I I, I discovered his work when I was like 21 or 22 or something. I don't know, 23. This is like, I think, pre-social media, maybe MySpace. And I was Googling feminism. Oh, no, maybe even Google wasn't even around, whatever the search engine was. This is a time like MSN and Hotmail and AOL chat. Do you remember that? Ask Jeeves. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I was trying to figure out what was wrong with pornography because I felt shitty whenever I used it. I felt kind of like a hypocrite and I felt, I just felt yuck, really. I feel like a shame, right? And some of my critics will say, oh, that's your internalized Judeo-Christian morality, anti-sex, blah, blah, blah. But I really empathized for the woman that I was consuming without empathy at the time of my pornographic use. And Jensen says this, well, I'm paraphrasing him badly, but in order for men to enjoy pornography, we have to turn our empathy off. And if empathy what makes us human, what are we when we're using pornography routinely? Yeah. And it really resonated with me. And it took me a long time, I guess, to like, Stop using, not a long, yeah, it took me a long time. I'll be honest with you. I, I kind of gloss over that, I guess, because I want to sound better than I was. But yeah, it took me a long time to stop using pornography despite having these academic understandings emerging. And then it took me a longer time to learn how to make love to a woman, or not even to a woman. I apologize for that phrasing, to make love with a woman. I guess because my sexuality had been so shaped by porn. I know to be true now for people in the digital age and porn is ubiquitous to the point that it's normal despite how unhealthy it is. So much of my sex life without meaning to be was devoid of emotional intimacy and just focused on trying to be hot, you know? Like Jensen talks about so much of porn is about being hot, but it creates no light. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Don't get me wrong. Like there's nothing wrong with, I think, casual sex that's well-intentioned and well-communicated about what the emotional availability of each person is. And I've had a lot of casual relationships, which are really nice and came from a healthy place. And I'm friends with those women to this day. And they've met my fiance and they know my children, you know. But I think also if we're thinking about Jensen and male dominance, a lot of that promiscuous behavior comes from that desire to avoid feeling the feelings we can't put a name to and sex can be like other substances. And yet we're consuming people and their sexuality instead of alcohol or drugs or shopping. Do you know what I mean? I do, yeah. Sex can be incredibly validating. It can be incredibly escapist. But afterwards, there can be also like a bigger hole inside of yourself if on some subconscious level you knew you did it for the wrong reasons. 
we don't talk about a lot of as men. If I can be crass growing up, you hear things like, oh, any hole's a goal, you know, like there's no such thing as bad sex. You're encouraged to be performative in your sexuality and brag about the sex that you had and the girls that you had sex with. And that is on steroids now in the time of social media. And the, the stories I hear from teachers and educators, given I speak in schools a lot about pornography, is so heartbreaking, bro. Young girls are acculturated to self-objectify themselves through a range of mediums and they send nudes of their almost prepubescent bodies to the boys because that's what you do to be cool or to be desirable and you don't want to be frigid. You want to be a bad bitch because that's what culture teaches you. And young boys are eating it up and they're consuming women and swapping images with each other and plastering them on the internet where they're really difficult to almost impossible to remove. And kids are hurting themselves because they've realized that, oh, yo, I sent this really private image. And if I'm speaking broadly and generally, there is like a gendered imbalance to this. It's girls doing this for boys. And I thought that boy liked me, but he sent it around the group chat. And now everyone is making fun of me or bullying me. And I think we'd be willfully obtuse or politically motivated to argue that the pornification of culture is deeply embedded and that means that male dominance is always prevalent because mainstream heterosexual porn, the type that is most consumed in the world. Because you talk about porn, everyone's like, but what about what about ethical porn and what about lesbian feminist porn? And I'm like, well, cool, that's great. It's great if you went to Harvard and you've got money to pay for this subscription and consume that critically. But most people don't, my friend. Most young men are not paying to check out some Erica Lust consensually made ethically sourced porn. You're checking out videos where you have no idea where they came from and maybe it's someone being raped because that shit's on the internet. I reference like uh, Nicholas Kristoff's story, The Children of Pornhub, which the New York Times ran perhaps in 2020. And it was so heartbreaking. You know, you can probably hear a bit of the emotion in my voice to read these stories of girls watching themselves be raped on Pornhub, like unconscious and knowing and knowing when we go back to this lack of empathy and male dominance and knowing that millions of men around the world were masturbating to their rape videos, like literally does my head in. Like it cooks my circuits. When you have this conversation in the public space, you get accused by a particular sort of feminist for being sex negative, for being sex worker exclusionary, for being Christian, which I'm not, for being vanilla, for being conservative, again, which I'm not. Like without understanding that our boys, speaking generally, are taking cues from this every day. And that in my line of work, I hear about girls who get raped at school. And if I'm being most generous, sometimes the boys don't even know they're raping them because they don't know what consent is because pornography and culture glorifies and encourages men's violence towards women in many ways. And doesn't give us language and tools and critical filters to understand that that's harm what you're getting off to. And if we're taking a 
I guess, a more radical feminist view to this, women are paid to pretend to like being her. Like we have commodified female pain and degradation to the point that it's normal and expected now. That's not the cool thing to say what I'm saying. And it's fucking insane, bro. Like post me too, when we know that so much sexual harm has been done to so many women, it's actually fucking liberals that, that, that defend the porn industry. It's like, it's maddening to me. Yeah. Even without the most extreme examples that you provided, as relevant as those examples are, but even if you take the vast majority of sexual encounters that people are having that are on the surface consensual, right? Like I recently spoke with Christine Emba. She's a Washington Post writer who wrote Rethinking Sex, a Provocation. And she's talking about how, why so many men and women are unhappy with their sex lives, right? And there's a quote from that book where she's speaking with a woman who was coming to terms with kind of her own sexuality over the last several years and why she was having so much sex that she didn't enjoy. And there's a quote, this woman said, I didn't really want it, but I did it. It wasn't rape, but it feels bad, end quote. And I think that the way that we've gotten here is sort of the same way that I saw this animated map of America obesity rates a few weeks ago, and it blew my mind. So the map went from 1990 until like 2020, so just 30 years of time. And in 1990, there wasn't a single American state that had an obesity rate above like 25%. Get out of town in 1990. 1990, there wasn't a single one. The, the one that was closest was, I think, Mississippi or one of those southern states that has always had a slightly higher rate of obesity than the rest of the country. In 2020, there wasn't a single state with an obesity rate lower than 25%. So in the span of just 30 years, every single state went from not being over 25% obese to all of them being over 25% obese. And so, you know, what changed in that time? I think you have this scenario where like pornography, this terrible food that's filled with corn syrup and carbs and sugar is literally everywhere. It's all the food that is available to us in the grocery store, in the restaurant, etc. Everyone's consuming it. Everyone's being told to consume it. We had that awful food pyramid that said, eat more carbs than anything else. And yet we're shocked and talking about individual responsibility when it comes to our sky-high obesity rates. Do I believe in something like personal responsibility that one must ultimately practice agency in one's own life? Yes. But in the same way that we have all these young boys and women who are confused about what sex should be, what consent is, what good sex feels like, what that even is. I'm no less surprised by that than I am surprised by people not even knowing what good food is anymore. Why so many people are so obese, right? We can't have a scenario in which every single day, Americans or Kiwis or, or anyone else are being constantly bombarded with bad food on TV and bad sex yet chastise those people for eating bad food and having bad sex. Well, right on. A hundred percent. I mean, this is why I do believe, you know, people make fun of the social sciences, but this is why I think the study of sociology and political science and stuff is important because it gives us a skill set to, to see this. But you don't even need that to see this. This is not rocket science like you said earlier, Mike. Can I call you Mike? Yes, go ahead, Michael, Mike. Either one works great, yeah. <laughs> Mike, yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't need a social science degree to see what you're saying to be true. There's a funny account that I follow on Instagram, Carnivore Aurelius, which is hilarious because I'm a vegetarian. 
but he talks about what you're talking about. He's like, he'll post photos of like a whole bunch of glistening, tanned, lean looking, healthy people from 1980. And I was like, what happened? You know, and then he talks about like seed oils and modern life. No one gets sunlight for all the good our technology has done. Like, it's great to be talking to you right now. It's truly amazing. It's definitely divorced us from what we need to be healthy. We need sunlight. We need to run around. We need to get physical. We need to interact with each other in person. We need to eat natural food. And like you say, we eat food-like products now. <laughs> yeah. We, we, it's like... Food-like products is a good one, yeah. It's true though, man. We have, I don't know if you saw that film, what was it called? I forget, it was a documentary, but it talks about food deserts in your country. Yeah. Like you can drive from place to place and there'll be a whole desert of, yeah, sure, there's convenience stores, but it's just filled with like Twinkies and Oreos and 7-Up and Coca-Cola, not a fruit to be seen. And even now, like I live in a agricultural country, you know, our biggest exports, agricultural products and meat and dairy. We export a lot of the best fruit and you'll go to the supermarket and everything's come out of a freezer and then it sits in your fruit bowl for one day to get ripe and then it's rotten. It's really heartbreaking. I don't know what to do about that. And then you actually have to, if you want to like eat local and food to table sort of stuff and try and minimize the distance between the production and supplier and the consumption, you have to be rich. You have to be rich to go to the farmer's market. Yes. And you have to have time to go to the farmer's market. You have to have a knowledge on how to prepare things and a time to prepare food. And some people will listen to it. Everyone's got an hour a day. Well, if you have two or three kids and you have like a couple of parents who are working because the cost of living is so high as it increasingly is in across the West with inflation rates rising, the cost of housing rising, the cost of food rising. People need that extra hour at work or the extra 10 hours at work. And so our kids are babysat by devices and they're on TikTok having their minds melted. It's all the same thing, man. It's all the same thing in that whether it's the dopamine you get from TikTok or the dopamine you get from pornography or the dopamine you get from the sugar that's in the burger that costs 99 cents, <laughs> which is available to you in 60 seconds rather than the 30 minutes it would take you to cook the food at home that doesn't taste as good, that is five times as expensive. It's all dopamine all the way down. It is. And then, you know, go back to our early part of the conversation, some criminality is dopamine, right? Like we've had a spate of what are called ram raids or like smashing grads would drive their cars into a storefront, run in, grab some jewelry, run out, like a lot of young people have been doing that over here. There's dopamine in that too, right? Yeah. I'm sure there are much smarter, more educated people than I can speak to that desire to get that dopamine hit. Again, it ties back to what we were talking about earlier. A lot of people have a lack of meaning. And so when you have a lack of meaning, you have a lack of connection and a lack of purpose. Well, dopamine feels pretty fucking good. The pursuit of it. And I would say that the educated folks that you reference here that might be better able to explain the science of dopamine are not necessarily the best ones to reach out to the people who need that counseling, right? It's the disconnect between the academics who are able to explain it versus the folks on the ground like yourself who are actually able to translate that education into something that is relatable to the kid that comes off the street and wants to kickbox. Yeah, 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 exactly. My question to you, Richie, is 
in my discussions with Richard, in my reading his book. Can I just say also? Of course. I'm like fully fanboying out that you got to speak to Richard Reeves. I'm like, yo, he's he's awesome. Like I'm like an academic fanboy of Richard Reeves. If you ever talk to him again, just be like, yo, there's this one kid in New Zealand. I'm not a kid. I'm 43 years old. But <laughs> I'm a big fan. His book really helped me. He is a phenomenal man. And by all accounts, a fantastic father, which is I think is, is something that drives him in his work, you know? And I, I know from your social media posts that you being a father is a big ingredient in why you do what you do and it's a big influence on you. But one of the things that I discussed with Richard that I imagine you see on the ground with your work as well is that it seems like, and I'm speaking in generalities, but it seems like boys and men need structure and need narrative more in some ways than girls do. It's not that girls and women don't need it, but if you look at like what girls from single parent homes, you know, where the fathers aren't there, how they do academically versus how boys do academically, how girls who are raised in single parent homes where the father isn't there do in terms of criminality versus how boys do, right? Across pretty much every metric, girls and women are outperforming men when they're in bad or environments that aren't perhaps the best ones. Girls and women, again, speaking generally, it's not that they're not suffering, but on the averages, on the percentages, they are doing way better than boys and men in those same scenarios are. And it seems to me, based on this research, that boys are particularly fragile to unstable environments and they need a narrative about themselves and their purpose and they need a story about themselves that is able to point that angst, to point those feelings in a positive direction. So I guess my question to you is, what is a positive story? What is a story that we can tell boys today to boys that feel lost, that isn't rooted in the stories of old masculinity or rooted in, you know, maybe stereotypes that are outdated and don't serve a purpose now. But in your experience, what is a story we can tell those boys? Oh, that's a really good question. I think often when we think about old-fashioned ideas about masculinity and old-fashioned ideas about how women to show up in the world can be quite obviously limiting and lead to harm, like emotional repression and expressing anger but not sadness and all these sorts of things. And allowing boys and men to know that you can be all of that at the same time. Can you rephrase your question? Can you ask, tell me your question again? If we go back as recently as 50 years ago, right? Let's just lean into for a moment the stereotypes about the purpose of boys and men in history. They're the provider. They're the ones who go to war. They're protectors. They're the ones who have to be strong. You know, like, Again, not that those narratives were always positive and that led to a lot of toxic stuff as well, but it was something that men could aspire to and it provided them a meaning, a role that was distinct for them. I think that the one potential problem here, a problem that we need to resolve as a society is that with equality, which is a net good thing, I don't want to live in a society in which anyone is constrained by their sex as to what their possibilities are, what their achievements can be. I don't want that world. But I also realized that with that comes the question of what story can you give to boys and men that can be distinct to them that isn't toxic? Yeah, I love that. That's a really good question. And I, and I, I guess I'm struggling to give you a, because it's a wonderful question. The question of our time in many ways. And I think that you're struggling to answer it isn't unique to you. I think we as a society are struggling to answer it. Mm, that's really insightful, Michael. I think allowing boys and men to know that we can be all these things at once is a good place to start. Because, you know, I love lifting weights and going running and 
having sex with my hot fiance and I love goofing off and talking rough and laughing at Dave Chappelle and bro stuff. You know what I mean? I like working hard. I like working hard. I feel proud when I run a marathon or get a new deadlift. Stereotypical bro stuff. We don't need to demonize that. And I can do all of that. And at the same time, you know, yesterday I took my son to playgroup. I was the only dad there. And as a heavily tattooed like dude, like you feel real conspicuous in a room full of 15 women. <laughs> and let them know that like you can lift weights in the morning, take your son to playgroup at lunchtime. And that's uh, actually like a fuller sense being a man. Because I think historically we've shut off the latter half of that. That, yeah, man, like you want to play some, you know, in your country football, like NFL, my country rugby. You want to box and you want to work hard at that sport, which is about stoicism in the moment and overcoming physical pain and working hard and being aggressive and like having power over another man with rules and boundaries to it. Pursue that because I think we need to do that as men. You know, we've always wrestled and done jujitsu and we wanted to lift the heaviest rocks. And that at the same time, if that isn't your interest and your interest is painting or poetry or fine arts, that's just as valid and we shouldn't denigrate that. Or you can be both at the same time. You can be a warrior poet, you know, you can be a Renaissance man. And maybe that's what we should strive to. There's that quote. The society that separates its scholars from its warriors will have its thinking done by cowards and its fighting by fools. And I think that's a good quote. I think that we can be physically embodied and pursue physical pursuits and also a higher faculty at the same time. And yet we kind of have this binary way of breaking those things down. You know what I mean? You know, I think same with feelings. We've coded like emotion and crying is feminine when I think it's human. And actually Carol Hooven talks about this. She says that testosterone has an impact on how we cry as men. I was fascinated to read that. But I also think there's a social element on that too, where we say, don't cry. Boys don't cry, right? Like, I think it's something a lot of us have grown up, they harden up. It's something in my culture, I'm not sure about yours, but it's a narrative that we hear a lot of. And if we give permission for boys and men to cry, but at the same time to also be more than they are in business or academia and have a healthy urge to compete, but not take that to every facet of their life. I think that's a healthier narrative. You know what I mean? I guess I'm trying to articulate that we can give boys and men a story where it's not one or the other. They can have it all. They can have a rich, emotional, nurturing, vulnerable, soft side and strive in business and strive in sports. And there's an honor in providing for your family if that's what you and your partner negotiate to do. Because if your partner is professionally successful, there shouldn't be a shame in you deciding to stay home and raise your children once the breastfeeding is done. If your partner wants to go back and join the workforce, and maybe she can make some more money than you, we shouldn't have a social detriment to that decision. And I worry sometimes that we still code parenting as mother's work. And then I'm trying to figure out these days, well, what's the biology in that? What's the sociology in that? And what's the equation of agency in that, as Reeves talks about? Because it's been fascinating watching my partner become a mother to my son because I met my stepson when he was three years old and I'd never seen that transformation happen before. It's just so graceful and seamless for her in a way that it hasn't been for me. Not that I've struggled, but like just watching her nurture Raphael, my, my little baby, Watching her breastfeed, 
you know, watching her go through nine months of pregnancy and going through birth with her, those are deeply feminine things that I will never, those are deeply female things, not feminine things perhaps, that I will never experience. And then it's like, I don't know, I'm kind of losing track of the, the question that you asked me, I suppose. I understand what you're saying. What you're advocating for is a kind of manhood that is boundless, that is not bound by the strictures of how a man should or shouldn't behave. Yeah, yeah. That's what I'm advocating for, Michael. Yeah. So in my work, we talk about the man box, right? Like men have to be tough, emotionally stoic, violent, like disdain for homosexuality, be the primary earner, all these sorts of social rules, you know, the man rules, you know, meant to be capable at all times, emotionally resilient at all times. But it comes back to what I was talking about earlier with this kind of like hegemonic concept of masculinity that we're meant to fall into, which excludes the guy who might be gay or the guy who might like poetry. And if we don't fit into that, well, then we're down the status hierarchy. And at the same time, when we try really hard to fit into that, it causes us a great deal of psychological distress because it's an artificially created model. No one, no one can be rich and powerful and emotionally invulnerable and physically strong and fit into a particular masculine beauty standard all the time. That's just not real. None of us can do that, you know? And it hurts us and the people around us to try and live up to that. And when we have that psychological distress in a culture that still chastises men for being vulnerable and sensitive and not having it all together, it manifests in harm, you know, whether harm to ourselves or harm to the people around us. And so, yeah, that expansive idea of masculinity, I think, I guess, is the narrative that we need to be able to, to show. Yeah, you nailed that in a way that I was struggling to. Thank you. Oh, no problem. You set me up with the ball. You know, I just ran with it. <laughs> That's loving you, that shit. Exactly. Richie, I have really thoroughly enjoyed our talk today. You know, I've been following you on social media, whether it was, you know, initially on Twitter or the last couple of years on Instagram. Listened to your talk with Megan Daum, watched you in some videos. I think you're doing really, really solid work, you know, and not the kind of work that is from a tower at an academic institution, but on the ground with the boys and young men who need it most. To wrap us out, I want to quote from a post that you made on March 1st. You wrote, I spend a lot of my time thinking, writing, talking, and reading about complicated, sad, and difficult subjects. Too much, probably. Coming home to my big son, Jack, and my little son, Raph, brings me into the moment and reminds me that beauty is real and humans are born pure. And that fuels me up to help others who don't have it as lucky as my own kids. Love my boys so much. They teach me so much. End quote. You know, you come from, by your own admission, a troubled home an imperfect environment that was often difficult for you. So my question to end this conversation, this wonderful conversation, Richie, is what is the world that you would like to leave to your sons? A more peaceful one, you know? I get constantly frustrated and saddened by how much we don't accentuate the beautiful in our world and we're constantly in our desire to even make it more just. There's so much ugliness in that. I'm very disillusioned with the social justice movement because it's really become cancerous, I think, in the last 10 years. And that makes me sad because I want those outcomes, but I hate the way that those conversations are had and there's so much horror in that. And I use that word very intentionally. You know, I read about people in your country who kill themselves after being cancelled. You know, people say cancel culture doesn't exist. Well, those people are wrong. I don't want my sons to grow up in a world where people other each other, where people wish death on one another, where little kids watch 
their fathers, hit their moms. I don't want my sons to have to step past homeless people and not even notice them anymore because they're so commonplace. I don't want a world where people who are truly mentally ill wander the streets with no support and they suffer and then they're a risk to the people around them because their mental illness might manifest in violence. I don't want a world where people are treated any differently at all for their sex or their sexuality or their skin color. I think those things should be the least interesting things about us and not at the primacy of how we experience one another. I would like our politics to have kindness and compassion and empathy at the forefront of it, irrespective of what your views might be on economics and how we distribute power. How we achieve those goals should be seated in decency. And at the moment, I feel we've moved so much further away from building that world that I can sometimes feel disheartened because everyone's born innocent in a degree of an empty diary, you know? Yeah, we have our genetics and we have our family histories and there's epigenetic impacts on us. But I want everyone to be born into a loving, warm home. I feel very sad that so many aren't. So I guess in my own small way, in this big old earth where, you know, I'll be dead in 50 years, I want to try my best to pass that desire on to my sons so they can do good in their own way and work with as many other people who haven't had it as lucky as my sons so they can pass that on to their own children, that they can build peaceful, stable lives for themselves and for their own children and their grandchildren. And that's the world I'd like to leave. A beautiful answer, Richie. And it can be difficult to not get disheartened. You know, I struggle against that feeling often. One of the many reasons I I do this podcast is to speak with good folks like yourself and others to keep myself from getting disheartened. My dad said something to me when I was a little kid. You know, he said, hey, Michael, how do you eat an elephant? And I was like, I don't know how, dad. And he says, one bite at a time. And in that same way, you know, we build the world that we want one step at a time. And you're doing that, in my humble opinion, every day with your work and your advocacy. You've done that by being introspective and working on yourself and ending the cycle of shame that, as you said, haunted your father and grandfather and generations that came before them. That's the best we can do. (laughs) And I'm saying that to myself as well. You know, It can be so hard, especially with all the toxic social media and the 24-hour news cycle that constantly bombards us with climate doomerism and you know politics has never been worse and all these other things. I'm just grateful that we have folks like yourself out there who are making an impact on the real lives of real people who are turning to you rather than turning to something much worse. So Richie, thank you for the work that you do and thank you for taking time out of your day today to spend with us. I really appreciate it. Yo, thanks, man. I needed this conversation, man. I really appreciate it. I'm actually thinking of deactivating my Twitter account because I find it so ugly and it affects my mental health a lot. But I'd love it if we could keep in touch, man. Like I'm on Instagram all the time. I like Instagram. It's a nice place. And I know Facebook's a bit old fashioned now, but I enjoy, I enjoy it there too. <laughs> yeah, I don't have Twitter anymore, but Instagram for sure. Yeah. 
Did you deactivate your account? Oh, yeah. Long time ago. Really? Can we talk about that real quick? Sure, sure. Do you feel like you miss out? Because I, I have a conversation like this with you, right? And it's super cool when I want to share it with people. And Twitter is a good place to do that, I think. But it's so ugly there. And the ideas there are so insane. And people are so, like, vicious. Yeah. How do you find, like, not having Twitter as someone who has a podcast and is, you know, in the ideas space? It's difficult. It is difficult. It's harder to get in touch with prospective guests than it was when I was on it. But I would say if you're going to stay on Twitter, I guess my recommendation would be is to treat it like a mailbox and just, you know, put a letter in the mailbox and walk away. Mm. If you want to use it as a platform to share things with people, just make the post and walk away. Because I think unlike an Instagram or even Facebook, I don't have Facebook, but I've heard that it's not as bad as Twitter. With something like Twitter, it's like the moment you read the comments, you're dooming yourself. You're setting yourself up for failure because Twitter is a marketplace of combat. The incentives, the environment, looping us back to the very beginning of this conversation, the incentives are structured in a way that rewards bad behavior. Mm. And so if you're going to keep your Twitter, and I don't know if that's the best idea, but if you are going to keep it, I would just say, host, share what you want to say, and then walk away from that mailbox. Don't open it. Mm. I really, really like that. That's awesome. Okay, well, DM me and we can talk shit anytime you like. <laughs> I would love that, yeah. Okay, cool. And of course, thank you again. No, it's been really nice for me, man. I really enjoyed talking to you. This was a good one. Yeah, I really wish you the best, bro. Hey there. If you're hearing this, you're exactly the person this message is for. I want to learn more about the Where We Go Next audience, which means I want to learn more about you and your thoughts on the show. So if you're listening right now, please send me an email at wherewegopod at gmail.com and let me know, one, what's your all-time favorite episode of the podcast and why? Two, what's your least favorite episode of the podcast and why? And three, where would you like to see this show go next? And hey, while you're here, if you're a fan of the show, it would make my day if you could give it a five-star rating and write a brief one or two sentence review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. Thanks so much for listening. I look forward to hearing from you.